I love the talking guy show. I hear two guys talking. 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 Two guys talking are here. I hear two guys talking. I'm Jessica Gazzola. I'm a priest. And I'm Francis Krebs, presiding bishop of the Ecumenical Catholic Communion. And you're listening to A Priest and a Bishop Walk Into a Story, a podcast of the Ecumenical Catholic Communion. You've walked into an ongoing conversation on progressive Catholic life. Our faith never stands still, but always evolves. And here, stories are the agent of change for the open-minded and the whole-hearted. So we're really excited today to explore this topic of sacrament, which is actually kind of a churchy word, but it has such wide-ranging application, and it's actually, I think we're going to leave this show and be like, wow, like sacrament can be this way we just view our entire being. And and we're excited to have this conversation with a wonderful woman, Jamie Manson, who's joining us. She's currently in London, but she's from New York. Thanks for joining us, Jamie. My pleasure. Thank you. So before we launch into some storytelling, we we can't wait to hear about you. We just want you to take a minute for our listeners to define the word sacrament. How would you define that? Well, I would define sacrament as a visible sign of God's presence in our world. The idea is really based on this Catholic belief that all that God created is good, And therefore, all things in nature are capable of revealing God's presence to us in some way or another. So that when you're a Catholic, we often think of sacraments as those seven sacraments Mm -hmm. um, that we spell with an uppercase S. But in fact, when you have that sacramental view of the world, when you can begin to really see God everywhere, you begin to see that almost anything can be sacrament and any encounter can be sacramental. Mm -hmm. So it's an experience of the sacred but one that's that's immersed in creation. And so my mentor, Mar- Sister Margaret Farley, would say that God speaks God's word in all of creation. Mm-hmm. And she based that idea on uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, who said that all beings participate in the being of God. All beings participate in the being of God. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think, essentially is, is what we're talking about when we talk about sacrament. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that's not included. I mean, it's just, it's a very holistic sort of idea. Yeah. Yeah, and what's interesting about it, too, is it doesn't always have to be good and joyful. You can see, you know, uh, I, I worked for years with the homeless, and many of them were mentally ill and or addicted to drugs or alcohol. And they were very, many of them very broken and very desolate. And, and in them, I would see the crucified God, mm. the crucified Jesus. So mm-hmm. even moments of desolation and brokenness can be sacramental. Mm-hmm. And a means of grace. I mean, I think that's so counterintuitive in our culture that it's like grace has to be, you know, in this prosperity gospel sort of culture we live in, grace is when we get money or when we're happy or when we're in love. But that grace can come through brokenness. I I lost my mom seven years ago, and that was an experience I never want to wish on anybody. And yet it's been such this source of opening up for me. And so I could see even in my mom's death that was so full of tragedy and grief for me. There's there's grace there. I just kind of want to get into your background a little bit, and I think we're we're going to just launch into all sorts of fun stuff. But I just want to understand a little bit about where you come from, and maybe we can start by looking at your first memory of sacrament. 
Well, my first memory of sacrament, ironically, was actually one of brokenness. It was my first Holy Communion, and I was in this little bridal gown, which is what we all had to wear on Long <laughs> Island right. when right. we made our first communion uh-huh. back in the early 80s, and veil and gloves, and I was t- uh, quite a tomboy. I still am, and I was mm-hmm. miserable. <laughs> um, but what I remember more than anything was my mother was divorced from my father and she had remarried outside the church and the reason she had remarried outside the church was she tried to get an annulment and the the tribunal out on long island told her that she would have to pay three thousand dollars and we were quite we were pretty poor Mm. you know Um, we were were getting government assistance and things like that Mm. and certainly did not have $3,000 to give the church for an annulment. And so my mother remarried outside the church. So when it was time for my first Holy Communion, she went to the priest, the pastor of the church, and said, can I please receive communion at my daughter's first Holy Communion? Mm. And he said to her, and these are his exact words, no, you may not. You are excommunicated. Oh, my God. And so my first Holy Communion was... I I received my communion from the priest, the priest who had excommunicated my mother, went back to the pew and was kneeling. And remember, all the parents who were sitting in the pews behind us had gotten up to receive communion. And I remember turning around and seeing my mother as the only person not getting up to receive communion. And I can still see her on her knees. And it was the first time I'd ever seen my mother look ashamed. Mm. And, And every other parent went up to communion. So... It's interesting that my first experience of, of communion was one of, of being deprived, of being sent away hungry. And I can't help but wonder if that wasn't the birth of my vocation in many ways, mm-hmm. to try to get the church to stay out of the way of God and God's beloved people, mm-hmm. uh, to, so that all who are hungry can be fed. So, well, yeah, so that yeah. was my first experience of, of sacrament. And, and just so the irony of the word communion. So yeah. you were sent away hungry, but and you were also denied communion at a very basic level. That's just so sad. But I guess as we were saying earlier, there's something about, you know, the empty tomb as being the, the nexus for, for resurrection faith or for resurrection hope. And I I assume that took a while. You didn't, you know, it was a bad experience. But then somehow this became something for you that taught you something about sacrament? Yeah, I guess it planted this strange seed in me. I think it's, is it Graham Greene in the end of the affair? There's there's this wonderful idea that, you know, when we are baptized, that somehow the sacrament follows us throughout our lives. And though it may be, we may not be aware of it at some point, it it, it manifests to us. And I guess that was one moment where sacramentality manifested to me. And I think it followed me around very quietly for, for well over 10 years. And it was when I, I was, um, I was in seventh grade, my mother sent me to Catholic school mm-hmm. and I really didn't care much for church and, um, had to go to church regularly because when you're in Catholic school, mm-hmm. suddenly fell in love with it and had this very stunning moment at my first Holy Thursday liturgy. Hmm. I guess I was, so seventh grade, I must have been 12 or 13. It was during the end of the liturgy when the altar is stripped and the the leftover Eucharist is gathered together and is processed usually around the church. Mm-hmm. And that was happening. The Pange Lingua was being chanted. Right. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of incense. And it was really 
really a stunning liturgy, and yeah. it was um, it was a, a moment of that I, I guess you could say experience the holy um, because it was I felt afraid watching that watching that procession and listening to that chant and smelling that incense. Mm. I was filled with something that was a combination of fear and yet irresistibleness mm. and and and, I, and, and, a, and, a, and a feeling of longing as mm-hmm. I watched that Eucharist going around that church. Mm. And I didn't know what I was experiencing, but I knew that I felt the Eucharist suddenly became irresistible to me. Mm. And I felt a calling to dedicate my life to it. Wow. In time, you know, in the, the years after that, I discerned that I was called to be a Catholic priest. And that's what happened in that moment. That was my moment of God calling me forward. Mm. Obviously, that didn't go very well for me when I discovered that. So, because difficult when you're born with the wrong parts. (laughs) Exactly, I had the wrong anatomy, right? And so I was in this great cosmic catch twenty-two that God couldn't work through the body; God gave me. And I even went so far when I was 16, because this this moment of, of Holy Thursday stayed with me for years, and it was it was it was such a burning within me. And I, you know, talked to my mother about it. And my mother said, mm. "Well, I heard she was working for the Catholic Hospital in Long Island, which was right near the seat of the Archdiocese." And she said, I heard about there's a vocations director for every diocese. So why don't I call our vocations director and get you an appointment? (laughs) Oh, Oh, what a mother. (laughs) Tell him all about what what, what went on and about your calling. Because she so believed in you, it sounds like. That sounds good. And so my mother calls the the office of the vocations director. And, of course, the woman doesn't understand why this young woman wants to talk to the priest. Oh, goodness. Makes me wait two weeks to see him, um, <laughs> as if he was very busy. Sure. Right? <laughs> you know, there's people knocking down the door <laughs> to become a priest exactly. these days. <laughs> and it was interesting. And so I finally got my appointment with him, and I was very excited, and yeah. very nervous. And I had my calling story and yeah. my burning longing to, to serve God. And I talked to him. I just told him my whole story. It must have taken 20 minutes at least. <laughs> and he didn't say much the whole time time he just kind of nodded and stared at me and at the end he said well that's very nice but I don't know what to tell you you're a woman Mm. and you can't be a priest Mm. and so he gave me this magazine with all these little uh each page was a postage paid postcard that you could tear out and mail in and each page was for a different women's religious order and I said well I don't (laughs) want to be a nun I want to be a priest he's like you know typical Long Island response well I don't know what to tell you. Sure. What are you going to do? Yeah. You know, and so yeah, and I for the that 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 was my experience of shame. Interestingly, in the church, mm. suddenly mm. I felt ashamed that God had made me a woman, mm. that God couldn't work through this body, mm. and I felt badly about being a woman. Mm. Wow. It was very very stunning. And you were a teenager at this point, which is such a formative. Yeah, I was about fifteen. Yeah. yeah. Oh my 15, goodness. Sixteen years old. Yeah. Yeah. Like, as if you don't need enough body issues. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> so, yeah. The church isn't notorious for making us feel better about our bodies. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely right, yeah. Mm. But I persevered and I kept, I kept you know, insisting God wanted me for something, you know. Well, and I had wonderful high school teachers. I went to Catholic high school on mm. Long Island and all of my teachers were very much Vatican II Catholics and were so encouraging of me. Mm. 
and uh, our, my male teachers in, in, in high school, my male religion teachers, had all been seminarians. Both of them had left the seminary, and they told us why. And it mm. wasn't to get married. It was because women couldn't be ordained priests. Wow. And they said we, were not, we weren't willing to participate in an oppressive system. Right. Oh. That's a remarkable lesson to get when you're 16 in Catholic high school. Yeah. <laughs> and from a man who had that choice, he could, you know, there wasn't a barrier for him. And the that's fact right. that he could feel solidarity with people like you, that yeah, that's really galvanizing. Well, they encouraged me. They made me believe God really was calling me, you know. So it was a beautiful experience. Uh, and I still talk to those teachers. They, they read my column. It's really mm-hmm. fun. Yeah. 20 years later, you know, wow. more than 20 now. So, yeah, so I was, I was very blessed, but I, I continued to believe in that calling. Ended up uh, majoring in theology in college and then went on to Yale Divinity School for my Master of Divinity degree. So. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Um, the the whole story is is very compelling. And um, so you were talking about Ms. Farley's impression or or her theology about the Word of God breaking through every created thing, and that that was what was coming back to me as I'm listening to your story, thinking it's like the Word of God is trying to come through Jamie Manson here, and you kept believing in it, and other people weren't willing to hear it. But you yeah. you just kept believing in it, and and a couple of people encouraged you. So I guess they heard it, like your mother. So here here's this woman who was broken in that yeah. way at the beginning at your first communion, and now she's showing up and totally supporting you. Yeah. Uh, so how did she have the strength to do that? That's awesome. Um, and then these uh, teachers in high school, yay for all of them, and yay for you that you uh, kept believing what was trying to come out of you and, and express itself inside of you. That's awesome. Wow. But there's so much difficulty there, too. I mean, so it takes so much strength and self-integrity and self-reflection to be able to recognize the sacrament in your life, the call in your life that might be coming from within and without the church. But then to try to find an avenue for that grace and call and the gifts that you were given when you're continually being denied, I mean, it just takes a kind of fortitude that I just wonder, where are you now, Jamie? Are you in a place, clearly you are so, I don't know, like Catholics are funny. It's like once you're Catholic, it's like in your bones and in your core and you can't not be. I was so glad to find the ecumenical Catholic communion for that reason because I grew up with in the, this incredible experience of the Roman Catholic Church but also had a call and so found a place to express it. You know, you're you're kind of in this place of of still continuing. You're not a priest right now, and and so where is that fortitude coming from, and where is your strength deriving now? I, I think I would. Um, I'd actually like to speak before I, I answer that to, to something you said about you know being Catholic, and I I think the first step of getting to where I am now um, actually came at Yale Divinity School where I had the chance to define what it meant to be Catholic and why the tradition Mm. was meaningful to me. Because, you know, part of the reason I went to Yale was to get away from the Catholic system. I'd actually gotten quite fed up with it through college and and the clericalism and, and, you know, and, and the fact that I was shut out from still pursuing my calling. 
you know, my teachers encouraged me to be a scholar. So, well, you can't be a priest, and why would you want to anyway? Mm-hmm. Now, granted, these were Roman Catholic priests saying this, mm-hmm. interestingly. Mm-hmm. You know, you should be a scholar. You're very smart, mm-hmm. you know? And, and mm-hmm. I think I got fed up with it. And so I, I applied to Yale because I wanted to get out of the Catholic system. I'd never really known Protestants. You know, in Long Island, we have Catholics and Jews. Yeah. And there, <laughs> there are no Protestants, <laughs> sure. as far as I knew, really. There were Protestant churches, but we never saw anyone go in or come in go into one or come out of one so anyway so all i knew was really catholicism and so it was a really stunning thing to get to yale where it wasn't just you know one or two kinds of protestant there were 40 different kinds of protestant at yale and it was an interesting discernment because i thought maybe i'll just hop over to the episcopal church yeah kind of heard of it it kind of looked the same from what i understood yeah and what I pretty quickly figured out was that um, there's something unique about the Catholic tradition that gives meaning to my life and helps me make sense of the world. And yeah. that ultimately is what religion is supposed to do for us, isn't it? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Ideally. <that> sometimes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On good days. Yeah. Help us make meaning of life yeah. and uh, answer the unanswerable questions. And so it was, it was actually Sister Margaret Farley, um, who came mm. up earlier, helped me find language for what it was that kept me calling myself Catholic, Mm -hmm. Uh, because as as I got deeper into studies of Protestant theology, which were mandatory at at Yale, and I began to study among so many different Protestant students and worship among Protestants, and I, I noticed that there was something different about the way in which so many of my classmates were talking about God and experiencing God and envisioning God. The God I had learned about in Catholic high, stu- high school particularly was this God who was very sacramental, very alive in the world, a mm-hmm. God that was very tangible. Some of my Protestant classmates, many of them were evangelical, their God was so wholly other and sovereign and out there, mm-hmm. not really engaged in the, in the stuff of life mm-hmm. the way the God I had learned about was. Mm-hmm. And so I was ready to actually give up on divinity school. I didn't think I had the skill. For it, because I had such a different understanding of God. It was Margaret Farley who I sat down with and said, I think I have to get out of here. I don't Mm. think I'm meant to be here. I don't understand this Mm. concept of God. And she said, Oh, Jamie, she said, Stay right where you are. She said, Don't leave this school. She said, You're just a Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, What do you mean? She said, You have a sacramental view of the world. And that's, that's where I get that phrase from, is from Margaret Farley. And she began to explain it. And in essence, and this is something actually we talked about a little bit earlier, was really Catholics believe that grace perfects nature. Mm. Hmm. And that there are almost countless ways in which God comes into our lives mm. in, in, a, in a graceful way. And that really is what's, what's different, you know, from, from that more Calvinist idea of God, you know. You know and that was what I was experiencing at Yale, this, this notion of God as wholly other and, and as the human being, the human person, which is what Calvin understood the human person to be, which was totally depraved. Mm. Now, if you hear the word total depravity, my goodness, mm. you, suddenly you're very grateful to be Catholic with all of its issues. <laughs> <laughs> when you have that notion of the human person versus this Catholic understanding of we're born into a very broken world, but as God's beloved, God's creation, we are intrinsically good. And God is going to work with that goodness, sending constant, constant invitations of grace to perfect us. That, that you know, I think gave me a new strength and a new desire to keep pushing forward mm. as a Catholic 
And really, it's this this fundamental understanding I got in my first year at Yale Divinity School that keeps me going. And, and it's really the central message in all of my public speaking that I give. And it seems to be the most life-giving. Much, much of my public speaking is to Catholics who are broken by the church or who are disaffected, but who do feel that something about Catholicism is still irresistible to yeah. them. And I help them name it because yeah. I was helped to name it uh, in my first year at Yale. But it's funny, I had to get into a Protestant environment yeah. in order to really begin to find the language and begin to find the meaning huh. of, of, of Catholic and why it is life-giving and why it per- continues to propel me forward. You're listening to A Priest and a Bishop Walk Into a Story. We're here today with Jamie Manson talking about sacramentality and her incredible experience of life and faith. And we're just going to continue to look at this this enriching lens of sacramentality where the whole world is just alive with God's presence. So, Jamie, you've spoken about it. You do talks and retreats, and you write about this topic, too. As you're out in the world and talking about this with people, what's their reaction? Like, what do you see they're hungering for, Catholics in particular, but anybody that you might meet? What's what's What chord are you striking that seems to resonate with people? Well, I think with with Catholics of uh, a certain age, uh, maybe over 60, who really were inculcated into the church, but who now find themselves hurt or broken or disaffected by particular teachings, mm-hmm. and that's whether they're divorced and remarried and have been excluded from communion, or they have LGBTQ children, or mm-hmm. a daughter who felt called to the priesthood, or they themselves felt called priesthood and mm-hmm. were not able to answer that calling because of the church's teaching. For those people, when I talk about sacramentality, you really see a light go off in them and say, oh, that's what it is that mm-hmm. keeps me connected to this church. That's what it is that keeps me fighting. That's what it is that keeps me identifying as Catholic, even though I'm, I'm, I'm so angry or upset or disaffected. Mm-hmm. So for that age group, I think Certainly, I really see a, a, a light go off in them and, 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 and even gratitude, you know, expressed for helping them get that, that language and, and helping them name what it is that still is life-giving and still makes meaning for them about the word Catholic. Younger groups of people who, don't, who weren't really reared in the church the way previous generations were, right. they appreciate it because they... They're very hungry for presence, I would say. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I often say, I think we're having a crisis of presence hmm. in our culture. You know, it's very, very hard, particularly for young adults now. Unlike, you know, the older generations, young adults were not born into community or into villages. Mm-hmm. Right. The way every generation before them has been. Yeah. So young adults have this really striking challenge that has really, and it's unprecedented in human history, I'm really willing to say that, Hmm. where they have to find their own communities. Mm -hmm. They have to create their own communities. Just weren't born into community or into village or into extended family the way previous generations have. And so that's that's its own unique challenge. But then add to that the way in which we communicate Mm -hmm. in this very fractured way of um, texting and emailing and you know almost voicemail is almost too intimate for us now these days (laughs) Um, you know um, and so what what I sense about young adults is is a longing for presence Mm. and so I think the idea that God can be present to us in the world because they have that inkling that 
you know, they feel at peace or they feel God in nature, but they don't know why. They don't have the theological underpinnings to, to, to understand mm-hmm. why that is. Yeah. Then the idea that they can actually become sacrament to one another mm-hmm. by being present to one another, mm-hmm. I think is really uh, radical for them. And also that by doing social justice work or any kind of service work can also be spiritual discipline. Yeah. Spirituality doesn't just come in church, but that that you can actively practice spirituality by finding the sacred, by finding the sacrament in social justice work, I think is really feeds them in a way mm-hmm. that's necessary, especially if you, young people who do social justice work burn out so quickly mm. because there's nothing to feed them. Yeah. They don't have the lens to see it as sacrament. They don't know that God is present in the work. So the more you can help them attune their vision to see that, I think, the more that, 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 that feeds what they're hungering for. Absolutely. And what a beautiful way to point to how we think about uh, sacrament, that, that it's about so often looking deeper at the materiality that's right in front of us. It kind right. of goes back to what you were originally saying, that, that every part of creation has the potential for revealing something of God's uh, presence in us, and, and that, that, that becomes like a, a mindset for us. Yeah. Absolutely, and in a culture of so much distraction, which is what you were sort of speaking to, Jamie, that it's easy to just continue to distract ourselves, and it's when we consciously pull our heads up and decide to be present, whether that's with another person or with the tree or just yeah, the sidewalk yeah. that we're walking down, yeah, you know, yeah. that there's a shift then. But it, it almost takes... It takes some awareness. I mean, and it and it takes people modeling and talking. And, and you're right, those voices just aren't really strong and there's not communities to guide people. So that's where I think your message of sacramentality just really can be one of these things that can shift, especially for people who are primed and ready to look for something more. They're just like, is this life? You know, <laughs> like right. my screens and my, you know, Facebook friends, is this life? Yeah. And well, no, you know, and, and there is this very Catholic message, but it's not just for Catholics. That's about presence. Yeah. I know we're coming towards the end of our time, Jamie. Were there any other last thoughts that you had about sacrament or about the world or about your story that you'd like to share before we go? Um, I'm glad it was helpful and I'm glad it, it's, it's useful. I'm trying desperately to write a book about it, so well, pray for me. Yeah, I certainly will. One thing I want to say before we uh, part, at least for this conversation anyway, Jamie, is I just want to encourage you. I'm so grateful to you for having this message, for believing in yourself, for pushing to get it out. I just want to thank you. I think a lot of us are, I know I was very impressed the first time I heard you talk on this subject. It really lifted me up and I watched how it lifted up the whole audience. Uh, I just want to encourage you to keep it up. It's it's an awesome thing that's growing inside of you. Please keep doing it. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. I need that. So I appreciate that very much. Yeah, it's a lonely pursuit trying to find your own path. I know Frank and I were talking about that on one of our previous shows when I was first ordained. I felt that. So yeah, I hope I hope we can connect in other ways too, Jamie. That would be really nice for me too. I love it. I've been a big fan of the ECC since I first met the Spiritus Christi people in 2006. Yeah. Mm, sure, yeah. Well, they're yeah. awesome people out there. They are awesome people. Yeah. Mm. yeah, big fans and got to meet um, the bishop who ordained Mary Rammerman, who looks like Kenneth Branagh. Peter Hickman. <laughs> uh, Peter Hickman. We interviewed him a couple uh, yes. weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. He looked like Robert Redford, if you, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
so funny. So I've been I'm such such a fan of 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 the tradition that you are you're perpetuating and giving new life to. So it's yeah. really a pleasure for me to be here and we'll have a good time in London. Thank you very much, and hopefully our paths will cross again soon. Be in touch anytime. Thank you so much. We will. One thing I love to do is to uh, write blessings. I, I love. I'm a liturgist at heart, and I love to write blessings. And so I would like to offer this blessing to you, but then to all of our listeners as well. It has to do with sacrament, I think. May everything you see, eat, touch, smell, hold, and love today illuminate your life with the grace its source longs to express. Amen. So we have a question, too. If you want to interact with us on Facebook or Twitter, you can uh, leave a comment. Um, we just want, Or if you just want to sit at home and think about this, our question today is, we want to know what in or around your home do you experience as sacrament? What's a visible sign of God's presence? Maybe it's a special place in your home or a pet or a person, but we want to hear from you. Oh, Frank, what in and around your home do you experience uh, as sacrament, as God's presence for you? Looking out the window at a tree that is never the same. Oh, yeah. Full of life. I've heard about that tree before. Mm -hmm. It's your focus for your meditation, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When little crocuses come up in my front yard, that's just most recently since it's springtime too, that's been such a visible sign. And so you've been listening to a priest and a bishop walk into a story. I'm Jessica Gazzola. And I am Francis Krebs. Join us again as we wander into another story. Like what you're hearing on a priest and a bishop walk into a story? We are listener and donor supported. Donate now and hear more stories from an inclusive and welcoming Catholic worldview. Visit us at apriestandabishop.com and walk away changed.